Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Not Your Average Joe, the podcast that'll make anyone a little less average. I'm your host, Joe Franco, and today's episode is a treat, ladies and gentlemen. With this podcast, you will now be entering into the haven of slam poetry, spoken word, the palace of creativity, and all things sultry. The guest on today's episode is Mo Brown, or Mahogany Brown. She's a slam poet, an author, an overall badass, and a black woman that is going to inspire you to take risks, take names, and not take any bullshit from anyone. You're gonna want to take notes. Kill the intro, sis. You know she's not your average show, not your average show. She's not your average show. Let me set the scene for you. It's a Friday night, New York City. Fall is creeping in, leaves are rumbling on the ground, and you're just walking, following the hordes of people trying to get a drink on a Friday night to celebrate the end of a long week. And even though the streets are filled with strangers, we're all searching for the same thing. Some sort of event to mark a memory in an otherwise blur of a work week in New York. You follow the 20-something hipsters with baggy jackets and hats snapped to the back, and you end up in a line for New York Poets Cafe. You didn't even know this was a real thing, that a space designated for spoken word existed outside of the confines of a movie. But here it is, in front of you. You listen in on the sentences that start in English and end in Spanish, making this beautiful blend of Spanglish with a New York twist. And although you have thoughts listed on miles of papers tonight, you're just an audience member. You walk in, it's dark and cozy. The chairs are stacked on top of each other, almost like a can of sardines, but in the most poetic way. And on stage is this fierce woman hosting her ass off, commanding the room, cracking jokes, making you want to be more creative simply by existing. That was my experience the night I met Mo. Today, I am with the lovely Mahogany Brown, who didn't even know it at the time, but I think maybe 10 years ago now, I was standing in the audience of the New Yorican Poets Cafe. Mo, I'm so happy. Can I call you Mo? I feel like just mahogany, Mo, you're just such a beautiful woman, a beautiful poet, a beautiful person. And I have been a fan of yours for about 10 years when I was sitting in the audience of the New Yorican Poets Cafe in New York. Welcome to the show. You can call me Mo. I feel like Mo and Joe, you know, we're going to go on tour together. As soon as this panini lets up, it's going to be us taking over the world. Let's go. You're going to be a multifaceted linguist and I'm going to poem it. And, you know, we're just going to, it's going to be a vibe. I'm, I'm certain. So Mo works. Mo is perfect. Okay, so I guess we're going to start off a little bit differently today. You suggested this and I think it's a brilliant idea. Let's start with a poem. Please. Love it. So I'm going to read a piece out of Vinyl Moon, which is my newest YA novel. And it's not in verse. It's actually in prose. But I play around with both. I have prose. I have text messages. I got Twitters. You know, all of those things, really. 
are allowed to make poems up. And I, I love to just challenge people's ideas of what poetry is and where it gets to exist. So uh, that's what this book is doing. And in this context, uh, the book, it, it centers Angel, a young girl who has endured some domestic issues with the boyfriend and how she reclaims herself, her space. And I think um, she actually taught me after I wrote it, I was like, oh yeah, I should be meditating more. That's right. Oh, I, I should be listening to music. I should be finding new things to read. This was a, this was a great, I don't know, blueprint for me to, to revisit uh, the way in which I became. So uh, I'll introduce you to Angel's voice and what she thinks about meditation. Meditation be like. You got yourself. You got yourself. You got to grab a hold of yourself sometimes and just hold on. You got to stop hearing the bad. You got to stop storing the bad in the bag next to your heart. You got to let it go. You can only control your reaction. You can only control your field of vision. You got yourself. You ain't got to have nobody, but if you got you, you got the gold, you win, you a winner, you got yourself, you got it. You got the park walks, if you are lucky. You got sweet desserts, if you are looking you got the sauce and the swag. You got it all, even when it feels like you got nothing. You got it. It is you. You got it. It is you. You know your name. You know your dreams. You got the power to change whenever you choose. You got the power to choose you. Remember? Do you remember? What is your favorite song? Sing that. What is your favorite color? Wear that. Who is your friend? Tell them you love them, then look in the mirror. Now say it again. Even the weirdest things are still here because they have a name, like you. Even the strangest things are still here because they have a name, like you. Even the loneliest room is still a room, like you. Alone is not lonely because you have you. The world is not complete all its vibrations and sensations, all its sounds and smells, all its lessons calling us to the front of the class. Hold on. Boom. As the sirens go off, because that was fire. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Got the New Eurekan vibe. You have, you've been there, you know. So I want to just take a moment to say I needed to hear that today. That was one of those that just hit home for me. I think that's the power of poetry and writing. I'm a huge lover of reading, of poetry, of, of all of it, right? Today's conversation, I want to talk about your journey, but also just stress some things that you even read in that poem, like the basic stuff, like whatever your favorite song is, sing it. Whatever your favorite color is, wear it. So with that said, let's just like set the intention of the day. It's a creativity conversation. But I really want to bring it back to the day that I decided to Google slam poetry in New York. So this is how I stumbled upon you. And I was a college freshman living in Manhattan. I grew up in a very like suburban community. We didn't really have many events like that. And if they did, they were certainly not of the black perspective because it was all American, all white, like very much not diverse where I grew up. It was diverse, but you just don't get that flavor. Like New Yorican Poets Cafe was to me the most cultural thing I had ever seen before. And I just was thirsty for that culture. I was thirsty to see if that existed other than just in movies. I typed into Google slam poetry, New York City. 
I don't even know why I had the inspiration to type that in. But then the Eurekan Poets Cafe pops up and it was maybe like a $10, $15 ticket. And I was a broke college student, but I was like, no, I'm going to invest in this because this is new and this is something I've wanted to do forever. And I'm not even going to read poetry. I'm just sitting in the audience. So I show up. Uh, I think I invited a friend and they didn't go. So I went by myself and you were hosting. And I remember being like, whatever this woman has in her head, I want to hear it. You were just so funny, so charismatic and so talented. And back then I hadn't done any kind of performing. I hadn't really even started making videos on YouTube. So it was just amazing. Like what you did, what I saw you do on that stage to captivate the room. And that's a rowdy bunch of people. And I'm like, wow, she just commands this authority and this creative energy. All of it is amazing. But I want to know, how did you get to that stage? Like walk me through the journey before I even saw you. Yeah, that's a great one. Thank you for uh, even Google searching that. All right. And yes, New Yorican is that. New Yorican is the epicenter, right? It is the mecca of not just poetry, but of language for marginalized individuals. It centers the voices that have been silenced for so long. Uh, and then you realize, oh, y'all, y'all playing because we really, we the sauce. <laughs> we, we, we're the ones who are shifting the narrative. We change you know, uh, the vibe. We, we move entire communities, which moves entire cities, which moves entire movements in a way in which you will feel the effect and the effect of our, our art and our, our culture for lifetimes, right? So I'm, I was so lucky to be at the New Yorican Poets Cafe, a home founded by Miguel Agarin, which I always say, rest in peace. He just We just lost him a couple of years ago. Um, but I got to be there and I wanted to honor that like I would honor any of our aunties and uncles houses, right? Get your feet off the table. Don't go in the refrigerator without asking. And so when you come into a space with the name Poets Cafe, you want to make sure people are honoring the poet, right? It's not background noise. So I love that you chose a space to go to. Even if you weren't going to be a part of that, I'm going to perform and this is my stage in the limelight. You were just like, I'm just going to come and, and you know, and get the blessing. And that's what brought me to poetry, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. I ran from it for so long. In high school, I was told only certain voices were valid. Only certain stories were valid. And through writing whether music journalism to poetry, whether poetry to memoir, all of those many moments are, are fueled by uh, the essence of the New Yorican. So I came to it as someone who had no one to talk to, whose you know father was um, in prison for the majority of my life still. Uh, my mother worked two jobs and then um, suffered through addiction. And stories are what kept me together. They, they kept me safe because I couldn't take care of everyone outside of that, right? So I, I found stories, and then from finding stories, I tried to pin my own, and then I started music journalism because that was another form of storytelling. And then I came to New York for the summer internship at XXL, and I was interning there when Honey was in the same building, so I got to uh, sit beside, you know, Kieran Mayo and Jocelyn, the founders, and, and just like, learn what does it mean to have language archive and experience 
what does it mean to to look at Lauren Hill 20 years ago and know on sight that she was going to change my life. So writing was always there for me. Uh, poetry came back, quite honestly. I left it alone for a little bit because the one thing they tell you is poets don't make money. You, you, you can't have a living as a poet. And I had a two-year-old daughter when I came to New York. I was a single mother, and I just banked on writing and my dream. Uh, and from there, after writing for a year full-time as this music journalist, I went back to poetry because my editor, bless his soul, I talked about during an interview, uh, I was physically threatened while driving down the FDR, girl. They was like, you know, trying to pistol whip me and stuff. Weird. But, I mean, this was a time of misogyny, right? This is a time when anything goes. People were just doing whatever they wanted because hip-hop was fresh and new. You threw money at it and not really understanding that you can't throw money at mental health issues. You need to throw resources at mental health issues. You need to throw, you know, assistance at mental health issues, not a brand new car. And, you know, these young people in here to ask you questions about things that may make you feel stuff. So I come back to my editor and I'm like, I want to talk about this. And he's like, you can't because advertising dollars. And that's when poetry literally flicked that match. And I wrote the poem because nobody could tell me what to say. No one could edit that away. And that was it. I felt so free. I hadn't felt that kind of free since I think I touched pen, right? Since I found myself falling into Toni Morrison's bluest eye and coming out alive. Since I found Babysitter's Club, all of them, stole them from the library. Don't worry about it. I paid my dues. But <laughs> stories were it for me to find myself. And poetry in that moment in that time revived me. And so I have not left the pen since. Um, I've been a full-time writer, poet, teaching artist, uh, publisher since 2001. I just have good feelings and it's for really good reasons. And I didn't know the backstory, but I could mm. sense this from the stage mm. 10 years ago, right? Like, and it doesn't matter if I notice it or who, like, who am I to notice, but the fact that the full circle moment happened when you slid into my DMs after you watched my show. And I was like, oh, holy shit, Mo, oh my God. Like I've never forgotten that day. And I think actually I I was trying to go back. I might've gone back to New York and twice after that. And just to hear you speak, it just oozes with passion and creativity and all the good things that writing mm -hmm. does to a person. And I love writing too. By no means am I a poet. I haven't published yet. anything, but I just love and respect the craft. And it's yet, we're going to put a little asterisk in there, yet. But I, I really love how in your journey, like in the very beginning, you saw that there was this uh, censorship when it came to your art and poetry was this hidden tunnel that you could enter and like no one can edit that. How wild is that, that that's happening across mm -hmm. all platforms? That's not just in writing. This is very much a common problem that creative people, they get success in a commercial sense and then they have to censor themselves. Like, And then you could either deal with it and have your soul die a little bit or you find the hidden tunnel, which for you is poetry. Mm. It's insane. That's a perfect way to put it. I think we all have the intuition, right, to toe the line where the heat is for us. Sometimes it's fashion, sometimes it's travel, sometimes it's writing, sometimes, you know what I mean? Like it's so many ways in which we can express the self, our inner self, that it gets a little dangerous. 
when you when you're in the in the position to make this a life choice, a career, and there's someone on the outskirt of that of that yes, that internal yes, telling you, yeah, but not like that though. It's always that it's like it's friction, right? Because who are you to tell me how to travel? That's why I I love how you said slid into your DMs. I did. I slid into her DMs because Joe. All right, one is inspirational, but two is fly as fuck. So I was just like, teach, teach us sis. I don't even think I said, I was just like, you are killing it. Thank you so much because I binged that joint. And then I said, well, when's she going to get her show? Because I just, I just want to follow her doing her thing. <laughs> make it so. I put it into the universe. Make it so. And then you said, literally, maybe two weeks later, we got picked up for another season. Won't he do it? So I'm like, you can tell when people are, are um, called to something. And when, I'm not certain that you have the same uh, experience, but when you toe the line with this absolute moment of success, like, okay, this is what I came to do and I'm doing it. What is on the other end of the yes, right? And and more times than not, mm -hmm. it's someone who's trying to capitalize off of your likeness, trying to capitalize off of your culture, trying to capitalize off of the meals that you miss to make that dream a reality. And that is the thing that brings me so much uh, anger. <laughs> Real tea, anger, I'm mad. You boring, bro. What you trying to get money off of me and you're boring. No, go do something. Get out of my way. I don't want to talk to boring people anymore. No more capitalism. You know what I'm saying? I want to it's work with true. artists. I want to work with dreamers and visionaries. If you know how to make money, that's great. But if you don't have a passion for, for the evolution of our creative selves, for the equity that we all deserve as creatives, then I'm good on you. Like I'm, I have nothing else to say. I only want to work with those who are unafraid of putting boot to the ground, putting foot to the ground. I need that. I need to work mm -hmm. with people I know who are not afraid uh, of sweat equity. Right? I need that. That that makes me that makes me want to dive in more. That makes me want to create more. I want to archive this moment that we're here. This. Like when you said you want to have a discussion, hell yeah. Like we're archiving a renaissance. Do you know what I'm saying? We are a part of a renaissance and there are going to be so many times where they try to censor that out, where they try to uh, whitewash it, where they try to say that you can exist but only in this way, in this little box, in this little corner, at this volume. And in turn, what they're really trying to do is um, kill us slowly. And, and I refuse. I refuse to go quietly. Everything you're saying, I'm like, wow, we are at a slam poetry session right now, this conversation. And I am the audience member, so I'm feeling grateful. So many things that you're talking mm. about, you know, it's now coming to light, especially because we're living in this age of social media where people have more platforms than they ever have before. So it's almost like this wildfire spread of these kinds of stories, of these yeah. marginalized voices that didn't have a space unless they went to the cozy New Yorkian Poets Cafe. Now we have every social media you could think of. So it's harder to quiet these voices. It's harder to take away the equity because... You could just start an Instagram account right now and create a series of tweets and then turn that into a book. I know you have a book on tweets and I love that. So it's like, while I think this has been a long journey to elevate the voices and give creative people their equity, I do feel hopeful because we have access to social media for, for better or worse. But I think in the good side that you could be an artist and a visionary and a creative and make a career out of it 
simply by consistently posting your work on the internet. People are still going to try to come and capitalize on it, no doubt. But we have the tools at least without having the need for a middleman in between. Yeah, I love that. I think you're right. The power of the internet, good, bad, or indifferent, is still power. And so I, I love that you have the artist in the driver's seat when it comes to sharing their voice and sharing their ideas. And they get to, you know, sit beside that idea rather than having someone try and market or put to, you know, uh, what's the word when you assemble? You assemble this idea of perfection. Um, what have we learned through these, th through these like hand-to-hand -hand experiences is that all of us are imperfect. And that is where the perfection comes in. Our humanity is imperfect. We make mistakes. And still, I am more than a mistake, right? My experiences are more than my worst mistake. And I feel like those moments, those spaces, give us time, if we choose, to really um, investigate, research, reassess, and realign for, for actual transformation. Not just, I'm going to mimic what someone's doing, do that, I have millions of followers, and now I'm on and I'm good, but like, I want to be a better human. And how do I get to be a better human? Okay, I'm seeing how this processed here. I don't really know if that makes me feel good. I don't feel full after this, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think more and more people are coming to terms with that. That's why so many Facebook accounts are closing. That's why so many Instagrams are, are less like just the face shot and more about practice. I'm practicing this thing and I might mess it up, but you get to see me be human. I think that that's, I think that's the wave. And really it's inspiring. It's inspiring to be reminded that we all have, you know, the same ingredients per se. We all have this cookbook um, and some of us just get it wrong. So what does it mean to try again? Now I'm gonna need to rewind on that one. Our experiences are worth far more than our biggest mistakes. Not your average Joe tip number one of a million. The mistakes are the building blocks of our overall experiences and a not average Joe knows this, which means that when we dive into things, mistakes are very much a part of the process. What a concept. If you're not getting goosebumps yet, then we need to schedule you a physical because this is some straight up soul provocation. We're gonna get even deeper after the break. Mo tells us how she went from being a single mother raising a young daughter to touring the world as a full-time poet. Because I guess that is possible. I hadn't heard it before. But this woman, she's on a whole nother level of grinding grit. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. 
Okay, let me let me just point this out. I think, first of all, you're a phenomenal storyteller. You know this. I don't need to tell you this. But what I love about your storytelling and storyteller brains in general is that you can make sense out of things that seemingly make no sense. And you can turn that into a story and you could turn that into an inspirational one at that. So it's like when you think about what you just talked about, that we're we're now getting into this stage, luckily, and hopefully that'll continue to grow, where we're getting a little sloppier. We're not we're not standing behind these perfection looking facades, right? Like there's a reason why people are binging TikTok. It's because it's not polished photos on Instagram that to be honest, the person is struggling and hating their lives to take. We want to see people who just woke up out of bed looking crazy, right? We want to see somebody trip and laugh at themselves. We're going forward to go a little bit back to the core of humanity. And that to me, it's like the essence of your poetry. It's this raw you know, we're not looking at this thing as a polished thing. Whatever is raw and real, like that's where the art is. Mm, mm. I love that. Yeah, I, I, I want to say that we are living documents, right? All of the art that we create, all of the posts that you are creating, though that those are pieces of this larger puzzle. But those are those are art. That's art. All of it. And yeah, I think you're right. I love you. First of all, okay, bars. We do this step forward to go back to the core of our humanity. I heard you. Yes, that was all right. You know, ten. I just want to hang out with you because maybe then I'll finally start putting out my writing. You know, so my journey with writing has been so so interesting too. Like. I want to know how you first started writing, but for me, it was when I felt like no one listened to me. Like I was the youngest of three and, you know, there was no space for little Joe. So I was just writing, writing, writing about these stupid boys wasting all the ink in the world, uh, talking about crushes that never even knew my name. And then that evolved into this relationship where I just looked at paper and pen, specifically in a journal, as my dearest friend. And then not only that, Mm -hmm. but I looked at it as like this way to archive these moments in my life. So I've always been into writing. I have journals for 15 years. And it's so refreshing to hear someone speak about writing in the same way that I do, but somebody who's made a career out of it. So how did you even first decide to start writing? I think like you, quite honestly, I was tired of people telling me to shut up. And the page didn't tell me to shut up. (laughs) You know what I mean? Also the youngest of my mother's three. Yeah, I had the exact same... Who do I talk to? I have these questions. Everybody's too busy. I'm too young. Copy. (laughs) All right. But this book is here. And then I read these books and I fell into the story and I thought, well, I want to tell a story. And then I tried to write a story and I couldn't, but I had the ideas. I had the feelings. So the journaling became, you know, the next thing for me, Uh, at least the ease in, the ease into poetry. I wasn't writing poetry straight up. I was writing ideas. I was writing thoughts. I think it's really cool that we came to it the same way. Um, I absolutely adore people who journal. That is like dead ass. That's a difficult, that's a difficult practice. You have to be mindful and you have to be consistent. And I just am not consistent enough to be like, I journal still. I, I did it for a couple of years and now I have like a gratitude journal where like I have a little small one so it, it isn't daunting in size and I write one thing I'm grateful for. Someone who taught me that, there was two people. One, Shira Erlkman, she taught me that uh, gratitude journal, like she she hit me to it. And Bo Sia, who is a phenomenal poet. I met him through Slam. He was... Uh, New Yorkian legend. He uses his 
like little yellow pad to do three things he's grateful for every day. And he puts it up on his Instagram. And just that moment of being like, oh, word, like even his anger. It's like, I am grateful to feel anger. I'm grateful to be able to name it. Like just those moments of small, no, you know, small notices and nods of gratitude at just being alive became, I think, my, my, like my North Star. So when I want to make sure I'm writing something, I turn to the gratitude. At this moment, I'm writing three books at the same time. Bless me, child. What? But I have to get it done. We got to go. We have to get it done. So the- Got to get it done. This one is done. Amen. The next one is a short, uh, a book of short stories around COVID-19 um, impacting teenagers in New York City called Epicenter. And then I have next February, my full book uh, collection of poems coming out with Live Right Norton, and that's Chrome Valley. And all of those are like different genres. So I'm able to pick up and go start, stop, do that. Um, and I'm also finished my book of essays for Haymarket, which is called um, What Metal Makes of Us. And that's looking at the prison industrial complex, the mass incarceration system, mass criminalization, and uh, the impact on women and children. So I'm doing... You stay busy. She's busy. busy. You're doing so much. And every time I hear someone's story or like, I guess their to-do list, I'm like, you do this and you're a mother and you're a good human being. And you're probably doing all these things with your friends and family. How do you find the time? So before we get to the time management, because we will say bookmark that. And let's go back to you were the youngest of three. You just discovered that paper doesn't judge you, right? Paper has the patience. Like Anne Frank said, you started journaling. You started jotting down these story ideas that never saw the light of day. Then what happens? Fast forward, I guess, high school. Introduced again to poetry through my AP Lit class. My teacher shames me. She asked us to recreate a classic, to remix a classic. And I remix it using NWA lyrics. I think I'm brilliant, bro. I'm about to get this A++. Oh my, let's hear it. I want to hear it. <laughs> it's okay. It's gone. She, she literally was like, absolutely not. This is not a poem. This is not poetry. You're not allowed to speak like this, right? And so that was like, all right, I'm done. I don't ever want to touch a poem again. Fast forward six years later, my aunt takes me to an open mic in Oakland called Dorsey's Locker. And I'm thinking, oh, it'll be like Love Jones. I just saw the movie, Lorenz State's Hot. Okay, this is great. I want to be Nia Long. I have my swoop. Let's go. I, I just walk in and a band is up there. They're playing. And this young woman is up on stage and she looks just like my cousin Tiffany, like dead ass, looks just like her. But then she starts speaking and she sounds like Sister Soldier meets E-40, right? So she's very... And, and also her voice is quiet. So I, at first it's like a whisper and then it's like super loud, powerful, talking about a boyfriend who cheated on her, <laughs> which was great for me. I just needed someone to tell me I could do it. I needed permission. And that was it. I was hooked, but I didn't think I could do it still. I was just like, oh, I didn't know poems could sound like that because I'm going back to AP Lit. I'm remembering, they said you're not supposed to talk like that, but now that I see it in front of me, someone else, it's a real thing. And so my aunt, she checks it. She clocks me being like, goo goo, like, oh my goodness, it's amazing. And she says, well, let's do it next week. You know, I dare you. You sign up and do a poem, I'll do a poem. And I said, I ain't got no poems. She said, well, you better go write it. And I said, okay. And at that point, I'm working at Sprint as a phone operator. My daughter is one. And I'm also working at the Children's Hospital in Oakland. So I have two jobs. I'm raising a baby by myself, and now I found poetry as 
this new place to share all of these feelings. We show up the next week. I sign up. She signs up. I do my poem. It is terrible. Let me go ahead and start that off correctly. No, I promise you. I found the notes. All I know is I said, I know you trying to call him, girl. You dialed star 69. And and I rhymed, okay? (laughs) (laughs) I wrote it and I rhymed it out. And then I did my neck. (laughs) I was The neck. You popped the neck. (laughs) I was invested. Um, But I got a standing ovation at the end of the poem. Okay. I said, oh, I never... I never want to experience a life without this feeling again. I'm coming back. I'm, I didn't care. I didn't care that it was a bad poem. All I knew is that I shared my voice and there was a room full of people that listened. And that was the first time I realized I had been yelling in an empty room all of my life. And so I come back to the table and I look at my eye and I'm like, oh my God, I feel so good. All right, you're next. And she says, I already scratched my name off. I didn't write no poem. What an auntie. See, that's the kind of auntie I want to be. She saw it in you. She still laughs at that shit to this day. She laughs. So Oakland. She laughs at that to this day. She's like, remember you thought I was going to do a poem? Ha <laughs> ha. Yo. <laughs> but what she did, even in the moment of, of her, you know, tricking me, she gave me my voice back. She gave me my voice back. I just, I, and I never had, I didn't realize until then how silent I had become. And through poetry, I found a new way to speak uh, about myself that allowed me to be vulnerable without feeling weak, that allowed me to be um, scared without feeling weak, that allowed me to like ask for love without feeling weak. And she gave me that opportunity to find like my sea legs. Um, and I haven't, let the pin down since not your average joe tip number two we never really think of our voices as a separate entity from ourselves but that's my favorite part about writing i get to observe my voice as if it were a close friend of mine and not me it becomes less daunting to think my thoughts because when they appear on paper they're no longer in my head and therefore they become something that i can observe and analyze as an outsider the tip here is to ask yourself does your voice express itself enough If not, what outlets can you find to get the words out? Because the minute that it's out of your head, you have more space to actually think. Shameless promotion on Joe Club. Join my journaling club because we do a really good job of meeting twice a month and getting all of the thoughts out of your head on paper in a global community. Click in the show notes to get info and a 50% off discount, y'all. How many years ago? That was 1998. It was 25 years ago because that's when I came to the States, 1998. And I came when I was five and I'm turning 30 this year. So (laughs) 25 years of poetry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there was a time someone broke into the car, took all my journals, which is probably why I don't journal anymore in that way. Like everything's on my phone or, you know what I mean? I love handwriting, but like after that happened, I think I was traumatized. Oh no. <laughs> I was like, the whole year of writing is gone. But then of course, you know, the spirit works in many ways because what it asked me to do is remember what I wrote. And some of the poems I remembered, uh, not a lot, but what it did allow me to do is rewrite um, in this newfound, stronger voice, which before I, I don't think I would have done because I'm like, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a capsule person. I don't try and remake the thing that I wrote. I try to let that be the moment that it happened so that I can look back and be like, oh, wow, I remember when I said something like that, but now I'm talking about, mm-hmm. you know, Black Girl Magic. And this is a whole different vibe 20 years later. So I, I want people to see the growth because I want to see my growth. 
and I don't think I would have been able to grow had had they not broken my window and stole my my journal bag. Man, these conversations just do it for me. Not Your Average Joe, tip number three. A Not Average Joe knows that it's essential to document their own growth. If you get receipts for everything, why not for your own personal evolution? You'd be surprised at how much more you can accomplish if you take notes and keep them as your receipts for your relentless effort to bring your creativity to life. When I open up my journals from five years ago, the writing seems so juvenile. But I know that I was on the right path because at least I was writing. Or put it like this, there'd be no place to evolve from if you don't have a starting point. Here's a journal prompt. Write a letter to your future self about where you're at now and what you're currently building. It doesn't need to be career oriented either. As long as you're evolving in some way, that's all that matters. Your future self will thank you. It's always so upsetting when something like that happens. Like, what are you going to do with those journals? You're going to go up to Slam Poetry Night and read them? Like, damn, leave my journals. <laughs> but I think it is a testament. I think uh, whenever something like that happens, like, you know, so many times I've been working on whether it was like articles or blogs or, or even journals. And I think it's the best thing ever. And then something horrible happens, like the file gets corrupt or like the video crashes. I'm like damn it but then I do it again and it's just in a different tone like I do it in a way I could have never have done it because I am evolved and you know we're always evolving so it's like you can never perform the same way you can never write the same thing you can never react in the same way if you're in a different more evolved state in your life here's another thing you could take the same question and ask it to yourself every single year and the answer would likely be different and on that note I still had many more questions to ask Mo about how she became this force of nature that she is. So we get to this point where Auntie comes through, she sees this magic in you and created this inspiration that you never left since. But as a single mother working two jobs, what was the jump where you were like, I got to do this full time? Talk about that moment. Like talk about fear and courage and taking risks. So I think if I'm honest, I wasn't afraid. That wasn't a fear for me. Fear was working in this call center for Sprint, giving out movie times. I was an operator, okay? That's fear. Doing something that brings no joy, that scared me. And so when I received the opportunity to intern at XXL, I jumped. I was like, absolutely, let's go. And my family was like, well, what's going to happen with this and this and this? Like, your baby. So, like, I was only going for three months, and my grandmother, my aunt... And everybody helped. They were like, we got we got her. Just, you know, do your thing. Come back. Because I was starting my third year in college as well, that next semester. So I was going. I was trying to, like, introduce myself to this music journalism. I wanted to be the West Coast correspondent. I had it all dreamed up, mapped up. I arrived. They sold the magazine. The magazine sold XXL. They were like, oh, your internship is dead. We just sold it three days ago. What? I'm here. I left my daughter with my grandmother and my aunt. I'm here to work so that I can go back and work. You know what I mean? Like, you can't do that. But they were like, no, sorry, it's it's a wrap. And it was Black Spot, Larry Black Spot Hester, who invited me to come. I think he was a senior editor, but at that point, he had received another job opportunity. So he said, look, I'm going to give you these three writing pitches. Uh, if you do them, then you can get paid the amount that you would have gotten paid as an intern. And... You can, you can still be here. Like, it's fine, but, like, this thing is closing. At this point, we don't know what, what is going to happen. We're in flux. And so I said, that's fine. I don't mind. I, I think I started working as a waitress. I had to go <laughs> get my waitress license. I was braiding hair, and I was writing 
magazines when they let me pick it up. And then I would do like four or five hours in the daytime at the office <laughs> when they were like typing and working and interviewing. I'm like, I can transcribe that for you. Or this room is messy. I'll clean it up. So I was trying to make myself indisposable. Okay. Like you ain't letting me go. I'm going to be the one. And it worked because Black was like, Black spot said, yo, you really are out. Like you're doing it. Okay. So look, I have this other opportunity. I don't know if you're interested. And it was a full-time job moving to New York, giving me seven figures. <laughs> like, no, it didn't give me seven. It gave me five. I lied. <laughs> but for me, it was I'm me. Like, <laughs> and you'd lived on the West Coast. Your entire family's from the West Coast. So going to New York permanently was a huge deal. I knew no one here. Um, and that's what I said, too. So they offered, like, you know, 35K for this, this job. Amazing. I had never had more than 17, 18K in student loans, right? So I'm like, oh, I can do this. But I said, but I got to do school. And they said, well, you can do night school. I said, okay. I said, but I got my daughter. And they said, well, and at that point I knew the other editors. And he said, oh, this woman, she raised me. She has this daycare. I'll introduce you, see if you like her. I met her, loved her. She reminded me of the woman that helped raise me when my mom was at work. And that was it. I said, yes. I said, literally, I, I had a Nikki Giovanni year of yes. I just, yes. Yep. Okay. All of it's possible. And my family... When I tell you, hit the roof, they were like, wait, what? You going where? You taking this two-year-old to New York where you don't have any family? We're not there. How are we going to protect you? And I said, well, this is a job, writing. This is how much they're giving me. Literally three times the amount I've been making here. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm out. That's it. And the worst that can happen is I get fired and we move back. But I'm going. And so I came back home. I packed up. Only clothes and baby toys and bottles and my child. And we moved October 16th, 1999. And we've been in New York ever since. Writing has been the nucleus. You know what I'm saying? Like, And then my mom came to visit, so she helped with Amari, my daughter, which was helpful because I didn't understand that startups needed 16 hours a day. I didn't know that. I was just like, yeah, I'm all right, got it. And they were like, no, no, it's a startup. That means you're writing, you're taking pictures, you're editing, you're promoting. Like I had to you know, do a whole bunch of things, but it was the funnest time of my life. The funnest, absolute funnest time of my life. My first week in New York, I interviewed Little Kim. Rockefeller had like a concert, so I had to go follow them. Cash Money had a tour. I got to follow. Like, it was the best time of my life. The music that had shaped me, the people that I looked up to, I got to sit and watch how they, like, made this alchemy possible. And then I got to come home and, like, look at my daughter and, and remind her that, like, she could do whatever she wanted to do. Like, all of it's possible. Now, did that continue that easily? Absolutely not. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that easy. And then the train stopped here and then things got harder. Yeah. You know, that, that night bus, it became the night bus. My life became the night bus. Ooh. When you missed that last <laughs> so, train in London and you got to run upstairs. Oh my God. Terrible. So then you have this moment of like, holy shit, when I take risks, life rewards me. And there's so much good that I didn't even know was about to happen to me. And yet here I am interviewing little Kim living in New York, baby's healthy, everyone's good. When did it shift from startup music journalism to like straight up writing books and poems and that shift? Mm -hmm. So is that the night bus? Yeah, that's the, the night bus took some time to get here. 
think if I came here in 99, uh, the dot com slump when when like Wall Street lost everything and all those websites that went up came crashing down. That happened in 2000. I lost my job December, the week before Christmas, December 2000. And I thought, wait, <laughs> I have to I have to get a Christmas tree like my kidneys, a Christmas tree like I, I lost it. It, it, it's funny because the, the small, like most unremarkable thing became like the largest thing. I have to get her a Christmas tree. The fuck you mean I ain't got no job? Like what? You're bugging. Give me my check. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so it took about another two and a half years. All of 2001 was me reestablishing myself as a writer and not just through journalism, but through other genres. And that's where poetry came back because I, I wasn't able to like really dig in. I'm doing 12 to 16 hours at this music journalism space. And so 2001, I came back to poetry and you know, when I was doing that open mic all the way back in the day, I had done this thing with the Punani Poets. Shout out to them. Black erotica promoting safer sex methods. HBO Real Sex had put it up several times. And so folks on the East Coast, because th that poetry troupe was from the West Coast, poetry folks on the East Coast, they were like, oh, that was you. You want to come and do a, a poem at this set? And that's when I realized, oh, I can make money sharing poems? Huh. Well, let's investigate because the only thing I had going for me at that point is I had unemployment to let me not stress out what to do next. And that's when I just allowed that incubation time to be a writer's retreat. I started writing poems again. I hadn't turned to that in a while. Um, I tried to put poems in my articles and then my editors would be like, yo, you're doing that poetry shit again, yo. Like, you can't do that. Like, this is crazy. Cut it out. Yeah, they were like, don't nobody want to hear Beanie Siegel cascading. I was like, <laughs> And you're like, but I got to try. Well, this is the thing. It's like this relentless desire. The light cascaded. It's like this thing that you couldn't get out of your head. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get it out. They tried to take it out. They did. It never came out. You resisted. She persisted. <laughs> So I stayed, I stayed doing, uh, you know, I, I, poetry was still there, but I wasn't really able to exercise it. And then in 2001, I was invited to do a couple of shows and that was it. I was back in the throw. And it wasn't until I went on tour in Europe in the end of 2001 that I was like, oh, oh, this could be a lifestyle. Okay. My mother was helping. She had moved uh, to New York to help with my daughter. I had still, you know, this uh, amazing woman that that looked out for, for my daughter when I worked. Um, so I, I didn't have that fear of, is she okay? Is she okay? And I got to just see my hand at writing and see where it landed when I performed on stage. See if it had that same effect that it had at the open mic. And it did. It did. And so since poetry has taken me first to England and Canada... And then, you know, we were the first performance poets to ever um, perform in Warsaw, Poland, myself and Jive Poetic. We went to the Austin International Poetry Festival. Any poetry festival that was happening, we would figure out where it was and we would go two, three days and then you get booked from there on. And so performance poetry became a very large, that like that became the, you know, the breadwinner for me. And then folks started saying, well, I want something to go home with. So I started making chapbooks. Uh, toured London 2000. Two, and I had my chapbooks, my handy chapbooks ready. And someone says, you have a book? And I said, yeah, I made these chapbooks. And they said, no, no, a book with a barcode, like a real one. Because <laughs> we want a book with a barcode. That's the marker. Because we want to put it in our libraries and it has to have a barcode. And I said, oh, okay. 
I'm on it. So I go home, back to the States, and I send out packages and packages and packages and inquiries. And I receive a resounding no. Mm. And no, not you. And who are you? I get those, right? So then I started like feeling bad, like, oh, well, maybe I'm not supposed to be writing poetry. Maybe I'm just supposed to perform it. Oh, that's weird. It felt weird. You know what I mean? Like to reach out and everybody be like, one person literally said, I don't know who your audience is. And I had literally just walked off stage, opened this email. But the stage I walked off of was in Deptford Theater in England. I think it seats about 2,000 maybe. Standing ovation. And you say you don't know who my audience is. So I said, okay, copy. I know my audience. I looked up what does it mean to self-publish, how to do it. I then licensed the company, Penmanship Books. I self-published myself for a year. After a year, I made an anthology with 20 other women. And then I did one for men. And then I started publishing chat books for authors so that they could still get a first book deal, um, so that they could still be in the running for prizes, but so that they didn't have to feel like, oh, I'm not good enough because I don't have a book. Um, and that included everyone from hmm, Carvin's Lassant, who just played Washington um, in Hamilton on Broadway, Aja Monet, who is a phenomenal poet and organizer, um, Donez Smith, uh, Tango Eisen Martin, Jahaz Zanabu, Amir Suleiman, who's up for a Grammy with that Dave Chappelle um, vinyl. Uh, yeah, so I, I just published whoever, whoever I saw moving in the world with me performance-wise and was like, do you do you want help? Like, let me know how to help. And, and I wasn't trying to get rich. It wasn't about how do I get money from you because I used my income tax refund checks to publish many books. But it was about having that book available, making this capsule for this moment, and having no one have to tell you how you should sound to be viable. Can we just take a moment to appreciate what an outstanding woman Mo is? There are way too many nuggets of wisdom to dissect just one, but I do want to highlight that the hustle in Mo's journey is just otherworldly. She didn't sit around waiting for the book deal to come. She made her own book deal, and that's the definition of a not average Joe. Or should I say, a not average mo? Tip number four, don't put so much authority in other people's hands. We have so much power of our own and maybe it takes a few no's to remember that we're living in an age where we don't need anyone to put our art and our efforts out there. We just need an idea, a little bit of elbow grease and resilience. Damn it, we got more story to tell. I can't believe this. This is like the, do people know about this story? Have you talked about this often? Yeah. Maybe. I think so. I think I did. I don't think it's in a history book, though. It needs to be. It'll be in the Not Your Average Joe history book. Yes. Uh, I want to highlight <laughs> that the worst thing that could have happened to you, which was getting laid off from this job that you moved all the way across the country for, was actually the thing that allowed all of this goodness to be born. So that's a trend mm. across the board with most stories of people that I've talked to when it comes to like living fulfilling lives. I don't even want to call it successful because I don't want it to be pigeonholed in this like success career. I, I really think when I see someone like you, you're living your passion. You're living for that thing that was relentlessly trying to come out of you. And like that is dope. Thank you. It, it feels wild to, to relive, retell it because I relive it all the time. But I kind of forgot until I start talking about it. 
I kind of gloss over it. But the fact that you're like, one, you're an amazing interviewer. You're like, that's great. Let's hold that. I'm going to go back to this. Because I was like, speed bump, boop. Let's go into the nice, <laughs> you know, nice gated community here. Do you see this? You're like, no, 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 no. Let's, let's look at this. <laughs> yeah, okay. no, no, no. That's great. So many people, especially people listening who are into writing or creative fields, and they have these stories where it's like there's a lot at risk, whether they're parents or they have jobs yes. that are stable. And to hear a story like yours, that's the inspirational moment, right? That's like what's scary to you is being at that call center. Like that's the scary thing, whereas – so many of us live crippled almost like creatively crippled because we're like shit what if I do this poem and no one cares shit what if I publish this thing and it and it sucks like personally as a, as someone who loves writing I don't even I call myself a writer because I have written my ass off for 15 years but there's even that stigma of like oh I'm not published so can I call myself a writer but no for the sake of this conversation as a writer I know how personal my feelings are to my art like when I read something that I really know I put my blood sweat and tears into I can't even read it without crying the imagination that I, I could even put myself to perform the thing that I know is so near and dear to me in a stage of 2000 people like that to me is horrifying but I know that that's why I need to do it yep you gotta just do it one, I, I definitely see it as your calling, right? The way in which you engage and make folks feel seen is a powerful tool. And if you are a lesser person, it would be a weapon. You know what I'm saying? And you are not using it as a weapon. Or, or maybe you are. Maybe it's a weapon against evil. I don't know, child, but what you have... Like the centering and the grounding, that's the thing that people are drawn to specifically as creatives. And specifically as creatives who feel paralyzed um, when they're pushing against the narrative of having, you know, a regular job, a nine to five. I definitely had that moment when I lost my job that people kept, I, I don't know what it was. It felt like, um, you remember that film, what was it, Devil's Advocate? With Keanu Reeves and Al Pacino. I never watched it. You ain't you good. It's good though. It's scary. But the idea that you have someone always like pulling at you, trying to take away the good parts of your hope, that kept happening in in that time before um, I realized uh, there's other ways to to move this poetry voice. I was told to go be a banker. You need to be a bank teller. You need to do some nine to five. You need to. You need to. You can't be doing these poems in front of your kid. That's crazy. Do you know what you're saying? Do you know what she says? And I'm like, I'm absolutely happy that she's talking about, you know, eradicating racism. I love that for her. And I don't care that she's five. We need to start now. <laughs> Amari would be like, oh, someone's cursed. And I said, you know, there are other words to use. <laughs> and you're like, that's my daughter. That's the baby I'm raising. 23 hours of labor, baby. That's mine. <laughs> What's up? Her. That's mine. <laughs> um, so I just literally, I felt people keep trying to tell me because I didn't have the job of now or then that they had deemed respectable that I need to do something else. But I, I, I knew better. You know what I'm saying? Because even when I came for the job that then they began to respect, I remember they said I shouldn't leave for that job in the first place. So I had to be mindful of um, who was speaking to me, who was placing their fears on me. Mm -hmm. That's their fear. That's not mine. Um, even if they love me, even if it's from a space of love, it's still a fear um, that is a burden that I'm not willing to hold. So I rebuke it. And I just would not listen. 
And as many times as I doubted myself and challenged myself and was like, I'm, I'm messing up and I, I don't know what I'm doing. Am I doing this right? I, I definitely had all of those doubts. But then I look at the poem and I remember why I got here. You know, I remember why I came. Wow, who else is ready to quit everything and just do something artistic full time? Like grab the crayons, y'all, I'm ready. Now your average Joe tip number five. A not so average Joe knows that it's important to separate someone else's fears from your own. The truth is that the beginning of most artistic paths are often met with resistance. People are nervous for you, they care about you, but really they're just scared because they probably won't take the same risks you're willing to. I always say though that if people tell me that it won't work out and I know deep down in my gut that I'm still gonna do it, it means that I'm onto something. And it might even take years before it hits, but if you're pouring into that thing that you cannot shut off, you cannot deny, then it's bound to yield seeds of goodness. Uh, there was one point where um, I was on Slam Teams and I was reading a, uh, a, a group piece and I forgot my line and Amari at that point, I think she was six, Amari said, um, oh, this is it. And she gave me the line I missed. I was like, what? That's mine. <laughs> That's my baby. It was just one of those moments where you got to remember why you did it. You remember what got you here. Remember why you came, why you arrived. And she is an, um, she's a blazing reminder of why I do what I do. Even in, in the moments where she's just like, I don't want you to work no more. You're always on the email. And I said, yeah, because I got to buy them braces. You know, you needed them braces. I got it. She went to, she went, I've never been to Dominican Republic. My daughter went. I, at one point she went to Jamaica before me, the Bahamas before me. I could afford all of that as a poet. I had never been there, but I knew if anything, I wanted to provide a life for her to see the world that I hadn't yet got to see. Of course, now I've been able to go because uh, she's graduated college, but it took time, and and I was willing to do it all again just to make sure that she experienced it, and it was through poetry. I love everything about you. I'm so happy to have this conversation. Genuinely, genuinely, Thank and, you. like, what a badass. They didn't publish you, so you started your own publishing house where now you say, you know, you've published all of these works, not only of your own but of yeah. other poets and writers. So where are we now in in the world of Mahogany Brown? I know, right? So I published others, published myself. I began publishing the New York Poet Laureate, the Youth Poet Laureate, still publishing them. But otherwise, I closed down the publishing because I found myself working on other people's art more than my own. And that, that wasn't working for me. Uh, I then, at that point, had been out for, say, you know, almost a decade, running the New Eurekan. That was a place that I found home. I was at the New Eurekan for 13 years, longest running host on Friday night. And being there and in grad school, I was like, okay, well, maybe I can let someone else publish me. So uh, I started reaching out to smaller presses because the big five, the Simon & Schuster, the Penguin Random House, uh, the Nortons, um, all of them. It, 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 you needed an agent. You need, you know what I mean? You need to, to put in a, this proposal. And I just didn't have the wherewithal. And I think I was fatigued, honestly. I was fatigued with no's. I was fatigued with the no. So I didn't really press it. I reached out to Button Poetry. They published um, a short chat book. Yes, Yes Books, they published a short chat book. And both of those small chat books 
were a part of my dissertation in my MFA program at Pratt Institute in Writing and Activism. So I was able to, you know, work it out in this workshop space. Uh, I never thought I would go get an MFA. Uh, I, I did the low residency program because I couldn't afford to go to school once I got, you know, fired. And I had to figure out how to do it. And it ended up being a low residency situation. Um, but until I could get to the low residency, I found Cave Canem, which is a home for black poetry, a retreat space and a workshopping space for black voices. And that really was the machine for me understanding how my poems fall onto the page and how to defend my language and defend my choices without feeling like not backed into a corner, but offended, right? Um, or, 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 or second guess my choices. That's what I mean. I didn't want to... You second guess your choices because when you look at who's published and who's um, championed, um, it's usually dead white men, right? And I, I'm not that. I'm a, I'm an al- alive black woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so you do feel it's it's not exactly the most nurturing industry to be in, not identifying with the category that has been championed for it hundreds and hundreds of years. The tradition, the canon, right? I wasn't. And it was through Cave Canem that I realized there is space for all of us. And so it, it only requires me to knock all up and around the door. See what, you know what I mean? And also Cave is a great resource because the people who were there teaching and leading these conversations were, you know, Cornelius Eady, Toy Derricott, Terrence Hayes, Jericho Brown. These people are Pulitzer Prize winning poets. Guggenheim Fellows, MacArthur Geniuses, right? They receive hundreds of thousands of dollars because people think they're smart. And 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 not only do they think they're smart, they know they're smart. And not only do they know they're smart, they know they're life-changing. And I got to learn from them. So I just took it in. I became a sponge. I learned every which way to write poems. And at first I came in as this free verse artist. And then I left writing poems um, formulaic, writing poems in the margin, writing poems um, in, in these forms, Italian sonnets, American sonnets. Um, but all the while, the one thing that they never asked me to do is change my voice. So here I am next to the canon, the Keats and the Whitman, right? Talking about nature and, and then talking about my grandmother from home of Louisiana. And those two are considered equal and as important um, and it's because of them. So then I get these these other book deals in the smaller press, and I say, okay, I like this. This is good. All right, this this is okay. You know, I don't have to fight, and I don't have to do every single thing, like proofread and publish and distribute. I don't have to do all that. I just get to be the artist. Shout out to that. I do a workshop because I'm constantly using poetry to serve my community. I, I'm a steward of the word and the practice of it. Girls right now ask me to come do a writing uh, workshop and reading I come and read poems like I would normally do. I keep it funky like I normally do. And then two editors walk up to me from two different publishing houses. And they're like, oh, we would love to talk to you about, you know, what you're doing. And I've heard that before, right? So I was like, "Mm mm-hmm, okay, sounds good. Thank you. Got your card. Here's mine. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Um, It's always in those moments where life changes. It's in the moment of a million knows the a million in one is going to be a yes. It was a double yes. And I did not realize what kind of yes it was until I show up to the lunch 
And then she uh, emails me again and says, oh, I, I didn't introduce myself properly. I'm sorry. And then she says, I'm at Roaring Brook Macmillan. Macmillan's a big five. And I go, oh, okay. So then I call my friend Jason Reynolds, who is, you know, king of all kings. He is the uh, young ambassador of literature for the United States. He started as a poet. I met him in New York City, New Yorican. And now he's like, gone right films and plays and all of these young adult novels so I call him hey you know Roaring Brook Macmillan and he's like yeah they're the big five Mo this is a big deal and I said oh shit I've like flubbed it off like she's just somebody who wants to have lunch or something and he's like all right just go in and listen to what they have to say and he said and order something expensive so I'm like, okay. <laughs> and in the meeting, she says, what are you working on? And I'm a poet. So I'm like, da -da -da -da, I'm running off these things. <clears throat> the one thing that I have done that's of recent news is this poem, Black Girl Magic, that aired on PBS. It went viral. And so I tell her all these things. And oh, and then I have this. And I just got my galley drafts. And I show her. And she says, okay, we would love to publish whatever you have. And I said, who we? we? What? Can I get a martini? And she said, get your martini. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the beginning of um, Mahogany being with the Big Five. They published my first three children's books, um, Woke Baby, Black Girl Magic, and Woke, A Young Poet's Call to Justice. And while I'm writing Woke, A Young Poet's Call to Justice, which is an anthology, Alongside Elizabeth Acevedo, Olivia Gatwood, um, all the art by Theodore Taylor III, I'm also working on my first YA novel, which is what she was interested in originally. She saw me do the poem. She says, is that a, a novel? And I said, yeah, it wasn't. I, it was a poem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it was a poem that was consistent with other poems about this tumultuous coming of age when I was 15. And trying to figure out who I was and if I was pretty enough and why no one checked for me and all the things that you do when you're 15. Mm -hmm. But the poem that I had read, which was that poem at Girls Right Now, everybody was crying. And so she said, I want to know what that poem is. Is that, that going to be a story? So I was writing that story. And she literally said, um, well, we, we want that story. And I said, okay. And so I gave them the proposal and she said, we need more. And I just couldn't do it. I was like, I'm not... I'm not doing more. And, and not that I was upset. It's just that I don't have nothing else to say. I needed somebody to say, okay, this is your book deal. Here's your advance. So I could focus. But if you're asking me to just like write, write more, and I'm touring Black Girl Magic, I'm, I'm at this point, I'm still hosting. I think I was still hosting at the cafe. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm teaching. Like, I have all these ways in which the poetry is invigorated and responding to the community. So I didn't have time to just, like, keep tinkering around. Um, I needed to know what they wanted. And I said, no, I'm not doing anything else. Just let me know if you want it or not. And I gave it my agent. Obviously, I have an agent. Shout out to Jacqueline Woodson, who got me my agent, Charlotte Sheedy. Um, she said, let me try something else. And then she reached out to other people. And then we had a bidding war that came in almost immediately. And it did not include my first publisher. It did not because they needed more. And I was like, uh-oh, is that, what am I supposed to do? Uh, yikes. 
And then I talked to Nick Stone, who's also a young adult um, author. I met her through Jason Reynolds. And she's one of those people that I see you trying to do YA. Like, just reach out because I know it's hard. And so I email once. And she's like, I'm going to check on you every month to see what you're doing. And I tell her, yeah, I wrote this. They said they want more. I'm not doing no more, girl. I can't. And she's like, can I see it? And I sent it to her. She read the whole thing, walked it to her her editor at Crown. Crown is with Penguin Random House, another big five. Um, and so I was like, oh. She's like, I'm sorry, Mo. I did something. I'm sorry. I shared it. And I was like, what? Next thing I know, the bidding war that's happening is not with, it's with her people and the person that my agent took it to. Still not including my first publisher. And so that was it. That's that's how I I, I got into the game. Um, I had a lot of angels on my side and a lot of people fighting for me. And I also was like okay with just starting the work, but also being mindful like how much more do I have to put in? Do I have it in me? If I don't, giving myself permission to say no, because I'm I'm usually an overworker. You know what I mean? I'll go in, I'll do as many hours as needed to be done to get the project complete, but I'll lose sleep, I won't eat, and I had just got to the point where I didn't want to put my self-care on the back burner, even if it was the creative thing that I love to do. I, I had to like put some boundaries in place, and lo and behold, Nick walked that into the editor. The editor wanted over the other one. Um, and Penguin Random House at this point has published three of my YA books. Actually, How all three. The only three I have. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> the only three I have now. Yeah. A little asterisk yet. Uh, so this whole journey has been enough for a feature film, to be quite honest. <laughs> And I'm so honored that you just spit all that knowledge with me and with the listeners. There were a million little nuggets of things that make you not an average Joe. But if you were to give some advice, tangible takeaway for mm -hmm. anyone listening, what would you say is the number one thing you would recommend to be a not so average Joe? Mm -hmm. I say um, it's OK to do it differently. It's okay to color outside the box. It's okay to be messy. As long as you are being authentic and honest with the integrity of the work. And what is your work? Like, you have to know what your work is. Personally, I didn't know for a long time if poetry was it. I just knew it, it was saving me. I didn't know it was my it. Do you know what I mean? And then I realized, oh, poetry can live everywhere. So as the inaugural poet in residence at Lincoln Center, I'm able to curate the same way that I was able to curate at the New Eureka Poets Cafe. Um, as a YA novelist with Penguin Random House, I'm able to look at, at the different voices that I never got to read and write them into the room. Um, I also wrote Chlorine Sky as a play. It goes up on Steppenwolf stage in Chicago, February 2023. Um, I wrote Chlorine Sky as a screenplay, which is being walked into production houses. So I'm trying every which way to make sure that my poetry is a living, breathing organism, no matter the stage, uh, no matter the page. So do it differently. Oh, oh I just got chills. Bars. We're going to need to drop a rap album as well. 
that poetry can live. NWA lyrics coming back. Full circle moment. <laughs> Mo, what do we need to look out for on the shelves? You just published a book. Mm-hmm. Vinyl Moon, She Is Here. Um, woke and Woke Baby. Those are actually been added to banned book lists. Um, what? Yes. Yeah. They're cruel. Too. Amazing. They're cruel. I'm just like... What, racism is alive and well, but that's when you know you're doing it right. When someone comes at you so fiercely about loving yourself, self-love, in a time when it used to be so easy to joke about the othering of people, um, that's when you know you're doing it right. So Vinyl Moon, please see her in the bookshelves. She's available everywhere. Um, libraries, too. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, Joe. Joe and Mo. <laughs> all right, y'all, my not so average Joes in all corners of the world. That is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. And I feel like I'm going to be speaking in a slam poetry voice for the rest of the week. And you know what? That's okay because I like this voice. It's very soothing, not only to perform, but hopefully to listen to. I'm feeling inspired. I'm feeling jazzed up. I'm feeling ready to sign up for an open mic night. Who's in? Huge thank you to Mahogany Brown. I'm linking all of her information in the show notes. Tune in next Wednesday. I sit down with a bunch of members from Joe Club. We talk about journaling. We talk about how their mental health has improved. And you know what? We're going to take the theme of writing and I will read you some of my personal journal entries because if I can't get to an open mic night, I'll bring the open mic to me. You know what I'm saying? Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Joe underscore Franco. DM me topics that you want me to cover. The show also has an Instagram account with bonus clips at Not Your Average Joe Pod. And if you'd like to join my Joe Club, you already know what to do. There's a discount code in the show notes. Not Your Average Joe Podcast is the coupon code for 50% off of your first month. This episode was produced and edited by me, yours truly. And the theme song was created and performed by my lovely sister, Fernanda Franco. Go out there and have an above average week, y'all. You deserve it. See you next time. Hey, yo, come listen to my girl, man. What you doing? Shit. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.